Good morning, church. Good morning. What a blessing it is to be here with you today. And I consider it an honor uh, to be able to bring the truth of God's Word. So as you can see, uh, this morning we're going to be taking a break uh, today from the series in Mark. And uh, we're going to have a short broken series over the next couple months uh, from Colossians. And when I was asked what passage of Scripture that I would like to preach from, Colossians, to me, was a clear choice. This book is touted as one of the most Christ-centered books in the Bible. And what better to grow in the knowledge and to spend the time focused on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We will see in today's text Paul's very pastoral prayer for the Colossian believers. Now, all of us know that prayer is essential to the Christian life. We see the importance of it emphasized in our Christian life as modeled by Jesus. Even in the final moments of his life, as we learned a couple weeks ago, it is in dedicated prayer that we saw our Savior. He was strengthened and derived a resolve for the final stretch to his journey to the cross. And today we will see Paul's prayer for the Colossians as one that caused him to engage in ceaseless prayer for them, even though he had never been to Colossae. I was reminded in studying this text how dynamic prayer is and should be in our life. Prayer is how we can encourage one another, how we can grow in faith, be strengthened, give thanks, and worship. We can pray for people even when they're far away when we're separated by a distance or at any time during the day. And the reason for that is, is because God is always accessible in prayer. The main purpose of this text that I want you guys to see today is that Paul urges the saints in Colossae to grow in the knowledge of God's will for the purpose of walking worthy because God has put them into the kingdom of his son. It is in this first chapter that we will see Paul's pastoral prayer for the Colossian believers played out in two main themes. In verses 9 through 11, we will see Paul's petition. And in verses 12 through 14, we will see Paul's praise. It is Paul's petition or formal request that the Colossians not just know God, but be filled with his will for us. We are going to look at how we can know his will and what the results of doing so look like in the Christian life. Next, we are going to see Paul's praise as a result of the incredible work of God in rescuing us from the domain of darkness. The old life we lived at enmity with God and transferring us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Here, Paul is asking the Colossians, that they would place a premium on growing in the knowledge of God so that they would be equipped and empowered to live lives dedicated to Christ. Church, I pray that is our desire, Christ-likeness in all aspects of our life. So let's look at today's passage in Colossians 1, chapters nine, or verses 9 through 14. For this reason also... Since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The start of Paul's prayer, he mentions... For this reason also, since the day we heard of it. But what is the it? We're kind of parachuting into Colossians here in verse 9. 
So let's take a look at uh, what that it is. So both he and Timothy, they received great news, presumably from Epaphras, who was likely the founder of the church in Colossae, regarding the faith of the Colossian believers and the love that they had for each saint as a result of hearing the gospel. At the time of Paul's writing, Colossae was a melting pot of various religious beliefs which led to many false teachings, such as the veneration or worship of angels that we'll see in chapter 2. The letter of Colossians firmly establishes the person of Christ and the completion they have in him rather than following after the derived notions of man. Paul continues, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. We saw the it, the faith that the Colossian believers had, but we also now see Paul was driven to pray for the church in Colossae. Paul's prayer wasn't a reactive one, but a proactive one after hearing the great report of the gospel bearing fruit. It was here that I was reminded that we can pray for something other than an immediate need. In essence, he was proactive in praying for the Colossians after hearing the faith and the hope and the love that was brought about by hearing the gospel. Here, Paul enters into prayer upon the mere hearing of the good news for the people that he had never met. Paul prays that God would lay a good doctrinal foundation in the hearts and minds of the Colossian believers so that their lives would be modeled after Christ. It is oftentimes in contrast to our prayers, which react, we, we reactively pray for life circumstances or things that come against us. Now, I want to be clear, praying for the needs of one another is vitally important and something that we should be doing both corporately and privately. However, this should not be our only motivation for praying for others. We also see, continuing in verse 9, Paul's prayers are unceasing for the Colossians. This does not mean that all Paul did was on bended knee in constant prayer for the Colossians, but that he repeatedly thought of them in his prayers. More importantly, Paul kept God and his will as a regular pattern in his life, and we'll see it here in his prayer. MacArthur says, This does not mean to be constantly in the act of verbal prayer, but to view everything in life in relation to God. This means that each interaction that we have with people ought to provide grounds for praying for them. Either bring them before God in prayer, uh, of a prayer of petition or a prayer of praise, as we see uh, modeled by Paul. Paul also asked that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. This church is the main point of Paul's prayer. Everything that we're going to talk about after this is hinged on this truth. In the face of false teaching, it was the knowledge of God's will that Paul anchors his prayer. Paul did not want them to casually know him, but that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. To be filled or filled up usually implies to be completely filled that there is no room left for anything else. And I know all of us have filled up a glass to the point where one more drop would cause it to flow over the edge. That's because it's already filled the capacity. And in this sense, being filled, followed by a quality or emotion, conveys being completely controlled by that quality or emotion. And we'll take a, a look at some examples in Scripture. Uh, in John sixteen six, the disciples' hearts were filled with sorrow. This sorrow domineered their minds to the point that they couldn't come to grips with what Jesus was telling them in the upper room. In Luke five twenty six, the crowd was filled with fear after Jesus healed the paralytic. The scribes and Pharisees were filled with rage. When Jesus healed on the Sabbath. 
Acts 4.31, the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. In each one of these cases, they were totally under the influence or control of whatever filled them. This is the idea that Paul has. This is what he's praying for in the Colossians' life. That God's will would have dominating control in their life. So let me ask you, how is it that we can know God's will? Church, is this something that we can gain knowledge of strictly because he gave us a brain? Or maybe because we have determined that we've read enough books that we've seen the wisdom of man. And then that tells us something about God. But notice how Paul points out how it is that the knowledge of God's will is determined. It is in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The knowledge of God's will is not something derived from within ourselves or something that we can gain from the world, but only from God. Church, God is inherently transcendent and cannot be reached by our own efforts, even though many have tried. The universities, people on Facebook, those you may follow on the YouTube channel, all claim true wisdom and knowledge. It's also not looking for signs to determine which direction we should go. As if we can determine the will of the Lord by looking at the tea leaves, so to speak. I've even heard looking at people, uh, looking at, people looking at a branch in a tree and it happens to be pointing north. So as a result, they must have determined that I must move north, take a job up there. Paul warns later in the letter against worldly things and the human philosophical ideas and man-made rules and principles compared to the divinely revealed truth as we learned about this morning. It is through His Word that we know God's will and the only way that we can truly know Him. God has revealed Himself and His will via the prophets, the apostles, His Son. And it's been collected in the inspired Word. And we see this substantiated in places like Second Peter 1, 20-21. And our memory verse, which I'm sure all of you can say by now, Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that Scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable for our Christian lives. We have learned in Sunday school that there are things that we can know about God. We can look at the world around us and gain some truths of who God is. But the universe is inadequate to convey what the will of the Lord is for our lives. We are directed by Paul in Ephesians 5, 17 through 18. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. For us to know God's will, He must reveal it to us. And He's done so, and we're thankful for it. Aren't we, church? An old pastor of mine used to say repeatedly, Get your nose in the book. Church, it's imperative that we do so. Are you? Is it something that we're pursuing every morning? To be filled with the knowledge of God's will, such that it has dominating control to the point that there is no room for anything else? Here the Greek word for knowledge is the normal one of gnosis with a modifier that intensifies its meaning. The word we see here for knowledge is epinosis. The knowledge Paul wants the Colossians to have carries with it the idea of a deep and thorough knowledge of God. This is contrasted with the knowledge of this world which is superficial or trivial. Having knowledge of sporting events or who is scoring multiple fantasy points for me hails 
is minor in comparison to the infinite worth of the knowledge of God. The knowledge of this world is fleeting and will pass away. But there can be no greater pursuit of our lives than to plumb the depths of who God is and His will. That we would be filled in a way that the knowledge of God would have dominating control of our lives. We should desire to grow in the knowledge of God's will such that we are mature. 1 Corinthians 14.20 says, Do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Can we expect to be mature and to live our lives in conformity to Christ when we don't know Him? Brothers and sisters, it is time to grow up and become mature in our thinking. Church, let's make it the desire of our hearts to be filled with the knowledge of His will. A lack of knowledge in some ways would be like opening a box from Ikea for a large dresser. Right? We're laughing because we've all done that. You have an idea of what it's supposed to look like, but without that little instruction book, you'd quickly become frustrated. And I can guarantee you'd be lucky to actually assemble one drawer. I know for me, the frustration it would leave would ultimately cause me to throw the rest of the pieces into the fire and ultimately resulting in uh, expensive firewood. But thankfully, we have God's word and we are not left wondering what to do with the pieces. Paul prayed in verse 9, that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, but to what end? Was it so they might have some insights into God? Or that they would be able to impress others in Colossae with their newfound knowledge? Of course not. As we move to verse 10, we see the reason that Paul points out that he desires the knowledge uh, of the will of God in that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In this statement, Paul uses the word to walk to describe the way we should be living our lives. Our walk or daily conduct isn't something that we choose to do every now and again. It is how we think. It is the things we do, the way we talk, the choices we make and the priorities that we spend our time pursuing. And church, if we're honest with ourselves, the idea of walking worthy is daunting. However, we are instructed in a number of places in Scripture to do just that. In 1 Thessalonians 2.12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God. In Ephesians 4.1, I implore you, walk in a manner worthy. In Philippians 1.27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy carries with it the idea of equal weights. Things being compared are on equal terms. In this case, Paul is saying, in light of being filled with the knowledge of his will, that the Colossians would conduct themselves in an equal way as the Lord would conduct himself. The choices, the decisions, the thoughts, and their pursuits should be the same as Christ's decisions, thoughts, and pursuits. By extension, we as Christians should be living in a way in which our practice matches our position. We are ambassadors of Christ, and as such, we should be appropriately representing Him in all aspects of our life. This is why we spend so much time dedicated to knowing Jesus. Week after week, Aaron has spent time in the Gospel of Mark, teaching teaching us of Christ and and His life. 1 Peter 2.21 says that Christ suffered for us, leaving an example to follow that we might walk in His steps. Christ is the standard 
by which we should live our lives and have our lives molded into. Walking worthy of the Lord and following after the example that Jesus has left is manifested in five primary ways. The first is to please God in all respects. The second is bearing fruit in every good work. The third is increasing in the knowledge of God's will. Fourth is strengthened with all power for the development of steadfastness and patience. And finally, that we would give thanks to the Father joyously. So the first way in which we walk worthy of God is to please Him in all respects. Church, there is nothing that God delights more than Himself. It is perfectly right for Him to do so. Remember, God is not like us. It is not wrong for God to delight in Himself. In both the baptism of Christ and the transfiguration, the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Becoming like Christ makes us well-pleasing to God in this sense. Living a life worthy of the Lord is something we should be doing. It is not living a life to please men, but instead please Him. It is by the Spirit in faith that we have a chance to walk in a manner worthy. We do this by the idea of putting to death the deeds of the flesh and to put on the virtues of Christ. We can see this, the idea of the Lord working so we can work, in Hebrews thirteen twenty through 21. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you in, every good, in everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. From this passage, we ultimately see that it is through Christ, not in our own strength, who is doing the equipping, through the Holy Spirit, that we may do His will and be pleasing to Him. The second way that we would walk worthy is by bearing fruit in every good work. In a similar way as walking, being that it is how we represent our lives, how we live our lives, fruit is described as the results of a life characterized by God's Spirit. It is the result of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. We should be producing fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Bearing fruit proves that we are disciples of Jesus. As Christians, we cannot help but to bear fruit if we are walking in faith by the Spirit. In the Gospel of John, it is clear that we have been branches grafted into the vine. If we are grafted into the true vine, being Jesus, we bear fruit and even to the point that we are pruned so that we can bear more fruit. Church, people should not need a magnifying glass to see one or two pieces of fruit on our branch. Matthew 7.20 says, You will recognize them by their fruits. A healthy tree bears good fruit, and every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John says that no one who is born of God will continue in sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. Church, we have been called to bear fruit and to not only go on in our unrepentant sin, John points out that we should confess and repent of our sin. As Christians who have been called to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, John also points out that if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Praise God.
God intends for His children to bear fruit. And not in isolated occasions, but regularly as a pattern and in different ways. We are to use the gifts that we have been given for the edification of the body. And if we have been saved, we know that we have been given gifts by the Spirit. We are to use those in loving one another to His glory. Church, what works are evident in your life. We should be bearing fruit here at church in our interactions with one another. I know recently, Amanda and I were blessed by you guys with the birth of our new son by enjoying your prayers and the delicious food. Thank you. Church, we must bear fruit in our homes with our wives. We must bear fruit in the workplace. Bearing fruit is not an option for the Christian. It is something that we delight in doing. The third result of walking in a manner worthy is increasing in the knowledge of God. This is a rather straightforward idea. The deeper we know God's will, the more we will know God. As I mentioned earlier, the primary means for knowing God is through His Word, where He has revealed Himself to us. A deeper knowledge of God produces a deeper love for His Word. The value of knowing God is not so that we can gain common facts about Him in order to sound pious. The value comes in the way of knowing God in a very personal and intimate way. God is a personal being who loves us and has done incredible things to show grace to us. Paul's prayer for the Colossians stemmed from the good news of their faith for one another. But he prays that they would continue in a deeper and more intimate knowledge of God. How is your relationship with the Heavenly Father? Church family, seek God daily in prayer. Read His marvelous truths in Scripture. Meditate and think on our Savior throughout the day. Without these things, there is no hope for an intimate relationship with our infinite God. The first date I had with my wife left me wanting to know her more. We've been married for five years and I'm still discovering new things about her and desire to continue to have a deeper and more meaningful relationship with her. The surface knowledge that I discovered on our first date does not compare with the relationship that we now enjoy. It is a richer and deeper relationship than I could have ever imagined. And yet, even then, I still have a desire to continue to know her more. In a similar way, we should have a daily desire to know God more intimately as we continue in our relationship with Him. In John's Gospel, knowing God is equated with eternal life. That knowledge of God will produce fruit in our lives such that we want to do good works. In turn... The fruit produces a deeper confidence and faith in Him that causes us again to want to bear more fruit, knowing who it is that we serve. And isn't this true? As we started off in our Christian walk, we were excited to share what He's done in our lives. The more we learned about Him, the more we wanted to tell others, but also we saw it have a deep and meaningful impact in our lives. It changed the way we interacted with loved ones. Even interacted with our enemies. Lord, the full, fourth, fourth result in walking in a manner worthy is to be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and all patience. The Christian life that we are called to live has to be strengthened 
It must be strengthened so that we will not be like impulsive Peter with feet of clay. We have to be strengthened so that we can live out the Christian lives that we are called to. And we have been strengthened with all power and all steadfastness and all patience. It's done so according to his power, again and not ours. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord would be impossible without it. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. It is obvious that our Christian lives are not lived apart from him. He did not give us a new life in hopes that we would figure it out ourselves. Or it is not a sadistic game of Frogger where we're trying to get across the highway, just trying not to be hit. He has began a good work in us in church. He is faithful to see it come to full maturity by the power of the Spirit. What a glorious thing it is to know that by His power and His might, we can do the good deeds that we are called to do. And again, we are strengthened to walk worthy for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Paul has thanked God in the first part of this chapter for the faith and the love and the hope of the Colossian believers. And he had asked God that they would be strengthened because they are baby Christians, showing their first signs of a life marked by Christ. This calls, caused Paul to pray for them, that they may know God and mature to a life that is holy and pleasing to him. Paul recognized their life as a new sapling, which has produced fruit, but the trunk is thin. And the branches are weak. It needed to be cared for and tended to. Paul heard from Epaphras the fierce winds and the tall waves of false doctrines and the schemes of man that surrounded the new believers. Like the new believers in Colossae, we too, church, are called to grow in the knowledge of God, that we may grow to maturity. We see this picture of a tree being firmly planted by the streams of water in Psalms 1. It says it yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. Paul is asking God that the Colossian church would grow, being firmly planted by the streams of water into a mature tree with a large trunk and deep roots that are anchored in the knowledge of God. Likewise, we are being told to grow up, no longer being babies, but eating the meat of God's word. That doesn't mean that we only have the patience and steadfastness when it's convenient for us, or that when things are good, that we can act like model Christians. We need to have all steadfastness and all patience, especially with the idea here of being faced with trials. It takes patience and steadfastness to endure these difficult circumstances or even difficult people. Even in these trials, we can have confidence that in our circumstances, it did not catch God by surprise. And even those difficult times, He uses to shape us and mold us into the image of His beloved Son. It is in this that we can be joyful in the face of trials, that our faith in him is deepened and the love that we have for him and for one another grows. Here in Paul's petition, we see the fifth and final result of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, which is the joyous endurance of trials. It is the knowledge of God that produces maturity. As a large oak tree, that we might stand in the face of trials and suffering, 
the idea is not that we clench our teeth and our fists and that we just have to get through the trials of life. Church family, the the struggles are real. Each one of us is faced with them. However, the strength provided by the knowledge of God's word allows the believer to endure the trials joyously. We see Paul in Acts 16.25 when he's in prison. He is with Silas and, and they're singing songs of praise, hymns of praise and praying. Can we say that we consider it all joy when faced with trials of many kinds? Are we quick to praise God for his goodness and mercy when life gets hard? I know it's difficult for me. Beloved, in light of that, it's time to grow up. To be mature in our walk with him and to love one another. To support one another in times of struggles. To pray for one another continually. To be disciples. This ultimately leads to praise for him. And the work that he's doing in each one of our lives. And allows us to be firmly planted having steadfastness and patience. In this first portion of Paul's petition, we covered the response that he urged the Colossian believers to have as they are filled with the knowledge of God's will. This was to walk worthy of the Lord. The response of the Colossians, and by extension, us, is what? That we are to be pleasing to the Lord in all respects. To bear fruit in every good work. To increase in the knowledge of God. We are to be strengthened to attain steadfastness and patience. And finally, we are to joyously give thanks to the Father. Paul's constant prayer for the Colossians was that they be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And it was only this that would enable the believers to have the right response in living and walking in a manner worthy. Paul transitions beautifully, as as always. After instructing the Colossian believers to joyously give thanks to God, he promptly launches into giving thanks for the work of the Father through the Son. In the remaining verses, we're going to take a look at Paul's praise starting at verse 12 and continuing through verse 14. It's at this point where Paul describes the Christian motivation to give thanks or to have an attitude of gratitude. Sorry for that one. I couldn't help. This section can really be broken down into statements from Paul that are all different ways of describing the divine work of salvation. We see that God is putting on display His mercy and grace as Paul is setting the stage for one of Scripture's best and concise descriptions of the person and work of Jesus, exalting Him to His proper place. We're going to look at five descriptions of God's work and salvation that Paul lays out in these three verses. Paul praises God for the work of qualifying, for rescuing, for transferring, for redeeming, and for giving us from our former life of sin into the kingdom of His Son. We can see these things specifically as we read verse 12 and following. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sin. Paul starts off with the first description of our salvation with the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It is God alone who has qualified us, which means to be made sufficient or empowered or authorized or given the right to share in the inheritance. Here we see parallels to the Old Testament And that God chose Israel and set them apart as holy. 
He led them out of Egypt into the land of Canaan, where he gave each tribe their own inheritance in a land filled with milk and honey. They inherited the promised land because they had a right to possess it. This was because God gave it to them. Likewise, we have an inheritance and portion in Christ because God has qualified us. What does our inheritance in Christ actually look like? First and foremost, it means eternal life. But it also means the promises of God are ours in Christ. And to a certain extent, what we enjoy together on earth as believers in this church. Romans eight sixteen through 17 says, If we are children of God, then heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And we see that this is not something done, again, in our own strength, but done by God himself. It is an inheritance that will not fade away. It is not imperishable or it is not defiled. There are no moths or rusts that are going to destroy it, but it will be ours forever. We are children of the Most High God and have been separated from the world and set apart to God as saints in light. Light is represented as many things in Scripture, but primarily as divine truth or it represents the moral purity. Here also we see it set in stark contrast to the domain of darkness. The saints are those who have turned from sinful darkness to the righteous and pure light of God's kingdom. The second description we see of God's work in salvation is rescuing us from the domain of darkness. Family, we have been delivered or rescued from Satan's kingdom. And we see this most clearly in our familiar passage in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raises us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. How often do we stop and think, of truly what it is we have been rescued from. I think oftentimes we're too prideful to recognize the, the work of the Lord in our rescue. Later in Colossians, in chapter 3, Paul urges us to consider our members of our earthly bodies as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed which amounts to idolatry. If it wasn't for God's work in rescuing us from the domain of darkness, we would not know the blessings of His rich love and mercy. When we grow in the knowledge of God, we become aware of those who we once were, children of wrath. But we have been pulled out and rescued from Satan's kingdom. And church, we've been made alive together with Christ. What does this mean for us then? Church, in response to being rescued, we need to first give praise and worship God. But we need to tell others about the incredible things God has done for us. We see the excitement of Paul in the lives of the Colossians believers, in their newfound faith in Jesus, and the hope that they have laid up for them in heaven. By merely hearing the gospel, we need 
to share the gospel. People are dead in their trespasses and sins. And we cannot sit idly by. He rescued us and did what? In the third description, Paul says he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We were rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to a new kingdom. A new kingdom where we are under the sovereignty of our rightful King Jesus. While we currently live on earth, the kingdom of Christ is a spiritual reality right now. In Romans fourteen seventeen, Paul says, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Yes, we look forward to our eternal state where Christ will reign and we will be with him forever. But by the Spirit, we can enjoy the kingdom of his Son now. Walking in a manner worthy of him is our king. We need to see ourselves as citizens of Jesus' kingdom where we serve the king and not our own interests. There is a weightiness and a responsibility that comes with being a part of Christ's kingdom. Hebrews 12.28 says, Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Family of citizens of Jesus' kingdom, your lives are not your own. You have been bought with a price. How is it that we are living it? Is it not a blessing? Do we not see it as such? That we have been transferred from one kingdom to another. That we are citizens in a kingdom of our most high God. What a blessing. The fourth description is that we have been redeemed. Before being fit and made ready to be citizens in Christ's kingdom, we had to be redeemed. Redeemed attempts to describe the riches of our salvation and that it conveys the idea of being delivered by payment of a ransom. We have been freed from slaves to the bondage of sin. Scripture speaks in a number of places of Christ freeing us from our slavery to sin. To be slaves to sin does not mean that we had control of our sin. We were slaves to it. This is on display most clearly in Romans 6, 16 through 18. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey? either of sin resulting of death and death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed and have been freed from sin. You became slaves to righteousness. We have been redeemed and freed from the bondage of sin due to the work that Christ has done in redeeming us with His blood. So let's turn into becoming slaves to righteousness. Beloved, we must kill that old man and put on the righteousness of Christ. We must hate our sin. Hate, in this sense, should be an essential family value. We should be exercising it in each one of our homes. We should hate our sin. Finally, we see Paul's last description of God's work in salvation. Being the forgiveness of sins. The redemption in Christ Jesus results in the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is something that we are familiar with. It means to pardon or remission of penalty. While it is something that we are familiar with, it still should have an incredible impact on our lives. As Psalms 103 verse 12 says, 
as far as the east is from the west, so he has removed our transgressions from us. Church, today, as we approach the Lord's table, let's keep this in mind. Can we think of the incredible work of our Savior Jesus on the cross? And what it means for Him to bear the penalty of our sin. No wonder why Paul erupted in praise after seeing all the great works of God. In summary, we have looked at the incredible section of Scripture that captures Paul's prayer to the Colossian believers. In it, we saw Paul's petition where we asked, where he asked that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in order that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We also looked at what it means to walk worthy. We covered Paul's praise to God for his work in salvation, in God's qualifying, rescuing, transferring, redeeming, and forgiving work in the life of each believer. Church, how can we do anything less than to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Beloved, as you go throughout your week, invest time in getting to know God's will. Walk worthy of citizens of Christ's kingdom. Bear fruit in every good work as one who has been forgiven. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for you. Lord, help us to be able to take Paul's prayer. Lord, to apply it to our lives. Lord, to be able to grow in the knowledge of your will that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. God, that we would bear fruit in every good work, that we would increase in the knowledge of you. And Lord, that we would be quick to praise you for the incredible things in our life. Lord, to recognize that we have been set apart as holy to you. Lord, to be citizens of your kingdom. God, help us to love one another and to bear this throughout our lives and our homes and our workplace. It's in your son's most precious and holy name we pray.